If you would like to buy your own copy of Love, Activism and a Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Tara T. Green is Professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, US. She is the author of several books, including See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure During the Interwar Era, and editor of two books, one of which includes From the Plantation to Prison, African American Confinement Literature. In the second half of this conversation, an activist, educator, writer and bisexual icon, Alice Dunbar Nelson, Tara T. Green discusses Alice's life as a queer person and a queerness in the 19th century. We discuss how she defied many assumptions that contemporary readers may have of the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction era of the United States, including how exceptionally well-traveled she was at the time. We also speak about Alice's love of California, her time in New York, her contribution to the Harlem Renaissance and her queer love affairs. Take a listen. an extremely well-traveled woman does this how much did this influence her life and her activism and writing and so on yeah well it's interesting about the travel one thing that i had not thought of coming into this is that there would have been restrictions for women particularly black women because they did not always have access to cars as that technology becomes accessible to anybody And so she drives, she purchases a car that she does not know how to drive and never learns how to drive this car. There's some of the funniest parts, actually, of of her diary, because I can kind of feel her failure in that. Here she is, this accomplished woman as a teacher, and she's well known for her writing, and people are calling her to give these speeches and everything, and she cannot figure out how to drive a car. And eventually, she just has to give it away. But that doesn't mean that she's not able to get around. There are other women that drive, and so she's able to catch rides with them. And because she lives in Wilmington, Delaware, which is very close to Philadelphia. In fact, if you want to go to Wilmington, Delaware, you have to fly into Philadelphia. Of course, the distance would have been longer at that period because we have cars that go, you know, over 100 miles per hour now. But she would have been able to get her way to a bus station. I mean, not to a bus station, to a train station. That was actually her best mode of travel. And so not only was she able to travel up and down the East Coast, New York, and to Washington, D.C., where she did a variety of things, but we see her traveling throughout the South when she's working with the peace organization. And then eventually over to the West, she wants to be able to leave the country a bit more. She only, as far as I know, makes it to Bermuda. She wanted to do more during World War One, but because of the restrictions on race, she's not able to get a posting. But that travel also allows her to be able to have engagements with men and women that were intimate relationships 
So she's always mixing business with pleasure, but also to be able to do things like visit the White House and to talk with the president about the problems of lynching and to go to conventions where platforms are formed or to give talks and so on. So she was very active. She did not recognize boundaries and restrictions to where she could be and what she could be doing. Absolutely. And her description of the president, I remember being particularly snarky and vivid, which I very much appreciated. <laughs> yeah, snarky is a good word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are so many times as I was reading this book where Alice just got more and more impressive to me. And one of the things that really caught my attention was the fact that not only was she a prose writer and a poet, but she also wrote screenplays. Across all of her different genres, were there any themes that came up regularly? Yeah, well, certainly the theme of vulnerability, because we can see that with children, which she wrote quite a bit about. We can see that. And also, just to hold on there for a second, not just children who may have been poor, who may have been in immigrant communities, but also children with disabilities. There are several children where we can see those kinds of vulnerabilities, but they also are powerful in how they respond to what is going on around them. So just because they may be vulnerable, but because they are children, because they are poor, because they have difficulties walking, that doesn't mean that they don't become these kinds of heroes of the short story or the screenplay, as I discuss in the book. But we also see this with women and her earlier work because of the work that she does as an activist earlier in her career. We see exploitation as being very important to her. That sort of parallels with her work of the concern of Black women moving up from the South and going to these larger cities and finding themselves being conned into being placed into the sex trade, for example. And so she can see the various ways and probably because of her own background with her mother and this mysterious father of hers, the possibility that women are always going to be under some sort of threat and that society will turn a blind eye to women. So how does she then work with these other women to be able to push back and resist? And so resistance is a major theme in her work as well. Continuing on with her writing, we're just talking now about the impact of her writing. Um, she has a sort of connection to the Harlem Renaissance. How can we feel her impact on that today and sort of further out as well in literature generally? Yeah, well, she really is a Victorian writer. She begins writing before the younger artists of the Harlem Renaissance, which is really a sort of interwar era, 1919 or earlier to about 1940. And so her intervention there is to be the eyes and ears of the Harlem Renaissance. What becomes most important for her and even for those writers is that she writes about them in her 
journalistic pieces, her editorial pieces that are featured in black newspapers. So she has those under several different names. And when she focuses less on politics at some point and more on the writing, then we are able to hear a critique of the voices and of the themes of work as they come out. She's looking at that work. We're able to trace the kind of, in some ways, an evolution, this emergence, really. I think that that would be a better word of these young Black writers. So it's Langston Hughes, it's Cullen, it's sometimes it's even W.E.B. Du Bois, who's much older than all of them, but he has a major influence on the work because of the work that he's printing in the crisis. And then when there are award ceremonies, at times she may be nominated as well, but she shows up and she writes about those award ceremonies. So she also becomes the black socialite and writes about herself in third person as if people don't know that it's her writing. Her name is on (laughs) on the editorial. So, um, (laughs) but it's, if we read even that along with her diary, we know how much effort she had to put into even being there because she doesn't have the money for the train fare. So she has to borrow from someone. She has to figure out how to pull together clothes that are tattered and she has to kind of sew them together so that she can look presentable. But we also see in that as an older writer, her own feelings around not getting her work published and not the editorials, but the fiction writing that she's doing or the poetry that she's submitting for awards and not getting those awards or the development of that time of the technology that leads to this bursting at the seams film industry that she sneaks in. Sometimes she has to pass for white to be able to go and see those films. And she loved watching films and hoped to be able to contribute as a screenwriter as well. That doesn't work out for her, but this is also a part of the Harlem Renaissance and her engagement with the emerging genres of that day. She sounds, just a comment, but she sounds like so much fun like she really like lived her life what an incredible life yeah she is one of those figures that I wish that I could have been at a table you know at if you've ever been to any sort of boring banquet as I go to many of them what makes them fun isn't the speaker it's the person that you're sitting next to and if you sit next to the right person then that makes the evening worth all the trouble of actually being there. And she would have been the person that I would have wanted to sit next to. Oh, hands down, would want her at my dinner party. And also you spent 10 years researching this book and uncovered some really incredible information. I know I have my favorite Alice Dunbar Nelson stories from reading this book, but I was wondering what your favorite story was. that you came across during your research? I think it has more to do with the snippets of her trying to learn how to drive. I just find them to be so funny. She becomes the humor 
that we see. There are so many emotions that come out in her diaries over the years, but we're able to see a true, authentic self. So whether it's her going somewhere and enjoying nature and writing about the beauty of it in a sort of meditative state or being in the back of the car and noticing all of this, everything that she sees as they're going down the highway. And it's the last time I was in Wilmington and we were driving from Philadelphia to to Wilmington. I was thinking about her on that drive because I have no idea if, if how long that actual highway has been there or what her route would have been. But I still, in honor of her, force myself to really sort of look around and to think about something other than all the concrete that we see on these highways now, you know, to think about the trees, to think about the sky and the birds. And she had an ability to do that. But really, we see in those diaries, so not just that and how it felt to be in water and how it even felt to be in love for a few minutes. I don't know that she was actually in love with these women, but she talks about them as as if she's in love. But to experience all of these beautiful emotions with her and to also experience her depression, her disappointments that she tried to achieve something and she kept trying and kept trying and kept failing because that is human. That is the experience that we have as human, but that I understood as a woman who was getting older over a period of 10 years myself writing. So for me, reading about her failure of trying to learn how to drive became a kind of metaphor for all of those emotions and for what she was trying to achieve through the freedom of being able to drive this car and not being able to do it, but getting around anyway. I'm glad you brought up the women that she was involved with because towards the end of her life, the love triangle that she was involved in is my favorite Alice Dunbar Nelson story. And also the fact that she went to California and just fell in love with the scenery. And I'm also from California myself, so I very much related to that feeling. But your book has been so critically acclaimed and your narrative ability is just stellar. I was really pulled into the story of her life. But why do you think Alistair Barnelson's story resonates with other people as well? (sighs) Because she's human. She is human. She loved to laugh. She wanted to change the world and she understood that She wasn't going to be able to change the world, perhaps on the level in which she wanted to change it, but that the work that she was doing was foundational and that it continues and that we see its importance today. So to have been a part of society at this transitional stage, the end of a century, going into another century and being there for 35 years, for seeing technology change over a period of time, as I mentioned, the film industry, or for women to be able to drive cars, or for women to be able to vote, to own property. I mean, these are the kinds of things that she talks about and that she was able to participate in because she owns a house. 
at the end of her time that she's able to give to her family. She didn't have any children. She had a nephew and a very beloved niece. She's also the survivor of domestic abuse. And that kind of violence that was happening at a period where people did not call it domestic abuse or did not talk about marital rape, even though this happens before. But the fact of the matter is that she was raped, even though she was a woman who was trying to protect women from rape in a society that did not value women's rights to their bodies. These are questions that we continue to grapple with in society, not just in the United States, but around the world. And so we see how a woman resists, how she continues to fight, and how her story can resonate with people across cultures and nations. Thank you so much, Tara. This is, uh, I think, a great way to like finish the conversation. Um, I can't wait to like finish the book. Like an, an incredible life and a, a brilliant story that like I think that you tell like really well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you for bringing this book into the world. It truly changed my perception, gave me a look into history that I hadn't quite seen before. Um, thank you. It's available now, everyone who's listening from Bloomsbury and at the good bookshops. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>